How often do you, do you think of the Roman Empire? Uh, maybe, maybe you heard of this uh, phenomenon going all over the socials in the past few weeks. Uh, I was asked this question randomly in my own household, and since I'm very suspicious, I refused to answer it because I figured it was some sort of trap. Um, but apparently, uh, this question was being asked all over social media, uh, and the big surprise was, uh, apparently, men think about the Roman Empire quite a lot. At least that's what we were told. Now, whether the answers are accurate or not, I do not know. Uh, but if it tells us anything about our culture, I don't know that either, but it didn't keep a lot of people from weighing in on what it all meant. Um, I'm a little bit suspicious of the answers. I mean, one celebrity asked their uh, boyfriend, husband, whatever it is, how often he thinks about the Roman Empire, and he said almost every day, and when she asked him why, he said, uh, togas. I mean, I mean, how often do you think about togas? Uh, what kind of life do you live where that's something that comes up quite often? I mean, even the most banal frat boys only think about it about once a year. Um, but be that as it may, obviously, for one reason or another, it was the Roman Empire that was even being discussed. You'll notice no one's asking, how often do you think of the Medo-Persian Empire uh, or anything of the sort? And it's because, in one sense, Rome really has been idealized as obviously a very powerful kingdom, from its military might to its form of rule and government to its philosopher emperors to its beauty in both art uh, and the production of it, its wealth. I mean, obviously, it stands out even in its tenure as a beacon of power and strength as far as worldwide domination goes. And for that reason, many respect it and hold it forth as some form of idealized uh, time period. But I think I would ask this, how often do you think of Hannah? Uh, and I'm asking the men, how, how often do you think of Hannah? Usually at a women's retreat, apparently at our women's retreat, we think of mice, but uh, that's a story you'll have to find out later. Um, I asked that question about Hannah because today we won't be talking about the mighty Romans, but we'll be listening to a song from one lone woman in a small fractured nation who doesn't have much clout in the world and she speaks words that I would say that we ultimately need to hear. Not if we're just going to understand maybe our faith or what God was doing at this period in history, but if we're going to understand our lives at all and how the world really works. I mean, her poem or song, her prayer really, interrupts our story. We've just heard of her last week crying out in her barrenness for a son, and God in His mercy hears her and provides for her son. She takes him up after he's weaned. He's about three years old, and she's dropping him off, saying goodbye as his mother, in one sense, forever. And instead of concluding the story, the story stops and we get this song. But as we've seen throughout the course of the summer, as we've studied the songs of Scripture, this song helps us interpret exactly what we're to be gaining from Hannah's story, and not only from the story that preceded it, but how we're to interpret the whole book of Samuel, I would suggest. I mean, Hannah's womb, if you can bear it, was opened for the sake of the world. And this song that Hannah sings with this, you know, renewed strength... And uh, begins, yes, with one lone woman renewed, but it ends with a whole world that's made new because of what's begun on these 
this set of events that's transpiring in this book. It's not only how these events come to pass uh, that surprises us as far as what God does for Hannah. It becomes for us a template, a template on how we should interpret the book of Samuel. If you want to know uh, who you should be reading for, this poem tells uh, rooting for, this poem tells you. But it's not just how to interpret the book of Samuel, it's how to interpret your life, how to interpret this world, how to interpret what real power is and ultimately who will win. And so with that in mind, I want us to begin in the first three verses and see Hannah's new world. You'll notice the poem begins with her, my heart exalts, my horn is exalted, my mouth is stretched out against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. As Hannah remembers God's answer to her prayer for a child, she is overwhelmed by God's goodness. And she uses this phrase, he has exalted my horn. And that's strange language for us, but we're going to see it at the end of this poem as well, as well through uh, many psalms and scriptures. And what you need to be uh, visualizing when you hear those words really is uh, a horn. So whether you're thinking of a ram or a bull, some sort of mighty beast who does his battling with his horns, you should see him with his head raised high, maybe some, some blood on, on his horn as he's been victorious over what he, uh, whoever he's been battling at the moment. And Hannah says, that's me right now. My, my head has been exalted. It's been lifted up. I've triumphed over my enemies. God has given me power and victory. This birth of a son has led to her mouth being opened against her enemies. Our translation, the ESV, says, you know, she's basically speaking forth victory over her enemies. Probably has more to, you know, if you can uh, visualize what, what Pac-Man was to us when we were young. Uh, her mouth is wide open to devour her enemies, that she really has been given strength. How has she arrived at this exaltation, this state of, of pride and victory? She says very plainly at the end, God did it. It was His salvation. He exalted my horn. He has given me this victory. It's her exaltation, but it is all God's doing. God has acted for her, which is why God now in this song gets all the attention. And she says, there's no one else like Him. She said, no one's holy like our God. There's none besides Him. There is no rock like our God. So notice the incomparable nature of God. She says, to whom can we compare the God of Israel? And she says, there's no one. There's no other God that's anywhere near our God. And she finishes with that beautiful symbol, God is a rock, this place of stability and safety and security, a refuge without rival in all the world, a place you can stand and go into hiding as needed and find exactly what you need as far as your safety is concerned. Hannah and Israel have an incomparable God, uh, incomparable God who acts for them. Notice how she shifted my horn, my voice, and she says, there's no rock like our rock. So this personal story has now transitioned into a national story. And she wants the whole of Israel to hear what she's saying about their God. There's none like Him. 
And if he's pleased to raise the horn of lowly Hannah in her plight, what that, might that mean for a nation who has the same lowly uh, uh, plight in their life? Notice in verse 3, if that's true, she says, if, a, if there's no God like ours, no rock like ours, if he's the one that raises men up in exaltation, she says, why do you talk so proudly? You know, what is it uh, about man and their vanity that they would speak out uh, with, with arrogance? And she says, you know, literally, don't talk so tall, uh, which will become important to the book of Samuel. Watch out for tall people. Um, God resists the tall. There's so many short people that are celebrating right now. Uh, all, all life long, they've really been resentful, but at this moment, God resists the tall, the proud, the lofty. Those who think, you know, and this is really the image, it's not necessarily physical height, but those who think by natural disposition or what the world looks at as a place of power, these natural gifts that you have, whether it be strength or wealth or height, she says, anyone who depends on those things and gets arrogance from those things, she says, beware, don't talk proudly. And we'll see why very shortly. Anything that encourages confidence in our own strength, we will see, is what we need to flee from. I mean, this, if this is God, don't talk so proudly, because notice, He, he knows, and thereby He directs the fate of all. Notice Hannah is exalted because God's hand exalted her. But if someone gets confident and tries to exalt themselves with their own hand, their own strength, for Hannah, she says, the outcome will be quite different, that you either have to run for safety in this rock and let Him raise you up, or you will find that you will be brought low. And that's what we see in verses 4 to 8. And this is what I want you to hear in particular, because this really is the heart of this particular song that these are the rules of the world. You know, if Jordan Peterson has 12 and now 12 more rules for living, 24 apparently, they're just going to keep growing. We thought there was just 12, but there's all these other rules for living now. Uh, but these are the rules of this world. And the question is, will you believe that this is how the world works? And you see these contrasts that follow. Some are raised up and some are cast down. And through it, we learn exactly how God weighs and balances the world, how He will ultimately have things flush out in this creation. This is God's mind. These are His ways. And if He is supreme, like we just heard Hannah say, this must be the way that the world ultimately works. And so notice this world of opposites. What normally makes one proud, these ones who would open their mouth and speak proudly, you know, he, notice what she says, the warrior's bow is broken. That, that, that uh, object of power has no power at all. All of those who with obvious outward strength, all the things that would show might in this age, all of that is crippled. Those who are rich and fat and full, notice in the text, are now, they're all sitting outside of Home Depot, seeking day jobs, just hoping to get someone to give them employment so they have enough to eat for the, for the afternoon. The one who had many children, the one who boasted in her social worth because her household was full, now she is mourning the loss of each of them and her womb has been closed. So all the things that would lift one up, notice, 
God says, that's not how it works. They will all be brought to shame. But the things that normally shame people, the things that we fear the most, notice what happens to them, the feeble, you know, the wimpy, the weak. They have their hand raised in victory. That kid who was always the runt and the butt of the joke, he stands tall now. The hungry, the poor, the forgotten, they're all stuffed to the gills, living in ease. And the barren, people like Hannah, have a house full of kids, you know, toys and mess and noise and joy everywhere. And all the honor and security that comes from a household that large in this day. Those without power have been made large. Those without resources and influence have plenty. And those who bore shame and sorrow all life long now have honor and rejoicing. And Hannah tells us the way that this, all, that this is the way that the world shakes out. That this is the way things ultimately are. And the question for us is, do we really believe that? I mean, it's a question that comes to you every day. It may take on a different form, but it is something that we wrestle with every day. I mean, think about it. You know, might and money and security and social honor those things that fuel the engine of this world. I mean, the bow of the warrior, you know, strength, having some sort of security, the riches that make us also feel secure. You know, having lots of children was, a, was not only a, a, a sign of honor uh, and kind of social status, but it was also something that gave you hope for the future. And Hannah says, none of those things can be depended on. All the things that we would say are so important in this age and often fuel the engine of our own hopes and dreams, Hannah says, don't put your hope there. All those things are coming down. I mean, what matters? Who wins? You know, who should we aspire to be? What makes life, life? I mean, those are the questions that we seek to constantly answer, you know, and the same social media feeds that send us the question about how often we think about the Roman Empire send us answers to that question every day, you know. Uh, beauty is life, which is not a whole lot different. It's the same sort of honor and also a display of wealth in our day and age. Uh, you need to have money to look as beautiful as the people online, that's for sure. Uh, those things don't come naturally. Um, I mean, isn't it so often what we're fighting for and frustrated by and pining about, you know, why doesn't God secure us this sort of future and give us these kind of gifts? And, you know, we work and labor and worry and grow in anxiety about trying to acquire those things because we think that if we have them, then life will be granted to us. We want influence. We want security. We want recognition. I mean, at the end of the day, we want to matter. Or as we've once been told, everybody wants to rule the world, and that is true. And judging by looking around, or even considering the world of Rome, it sure seems like power and wealth and social honor is what greases the gears of this life, that if you want to have life, that is obviously the way to attain it. At least having some of those things in your arsenal is what makes you matter in this world. So how can Hannah say so confidently, that's not the way it is at all? Notice, because Yahweh, who is the clear subject of this text, his name is going to be repeated over and over again, works in a way that's opposite of everything that we imagine. 
He never does things the way that we would do them. He never gains victory the way that we would seek it. I mean, Hannah is exegeting what just happened to her, this barren woman who all life long was under the torment of this second wife and the shame that went with it. She's exegeting the fact that God has rescued her and what that rescue says about God's character. And it says, what you thought made the world go round isn't how the world works. Notice verses 6 and 7, which is really the center of all of this. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, does all the reversing. Notice there's this list of negatives. He kills, he brings down to shale, he makes poor, he brings low. And then there's this list of positives. He gives life, he raises up, he makes rich, he exalts. The same God that can bring a man down is the same God that brings men up. He's absolutely sovereign over the whole of it. No one can stop his hand. And God is pleased, this God who has all power is pleased to work under the opposite, which has been shown by what has already been said and the example that has been given. God goes and finds a poor one. Uh, So notice in your poem, he says, uh, after he lists all this going down and going up, he says, God will find this poor person uh, in the ash heap and he'll raise him and give him the seat with princes and exalt him to a throne. So she uses this concrete example where God goes and finds someone literally sitting in the dump. That's what the ash heap is in ancient Israel. You know, you go and burn your trash there, and this poor one's there probably scavenging for food, trying to find something to eat. And God goes and meets him there and then sits him in the palace on a throne. He inherits a throne of honor, all because God wants to. Notice what the next verse says, because the pillars of the earth are His. And what Hannah is saying is that God made the world. He sustains the world. He can do whatever He wants with the world. So if He wants to exalt the lowly one and put them in a palace, He has all the power and all the authority to do so. So whatever happens in rising or falling is all God's doing. And this is how that God has chosen to work. He exalts the humble, and He brings low those who are proud. I mean, can you bear that? Because according to Hannah and her song, this is really where the rubber meets the road. Hannah is telling us this isn't an isolated incident. This isn't just a one-off where God was nice to one poor lowly person. But this is a principle that God uses and undergirds the reality of His whole world. If you're going to understand Israel's fate, if you're going to understand the book of Samuel, if you're going to understand your life, you have to get a hold of this. And that's what we see as this text closes. We see a whole new world. But clearly, this text begins with Hannah. But notice, uh, it, it scratches by the end of it, the end of time. You know, we have this 
baby being dropped off at the tabernacle. But by the end of her song, she's talking about all of world history. The exalting and the humbling will cover all of heaven and earth. And we behold by these last two verses, this final reckoning of the whole world. This world judged and owned by God and the king that he chooses to exalt over it. Notice those words, the horn of the king, the horn of God's king, his anointed one, his Messiah will be exalted. That same horn that Hannah has exalted in the first verses, God's king has exalted in the last verses. I mean, the wicked of the earth are brought low, and this prayer ends where the world ends with a whole new order of things. And that requires a massive shift in our thinking. I mean, God, Hannah is saying, is like gravity. (laughs) So real, so pervasive, that no one's going to avoid Him. Everybody's going to come under His reckoning. If you try to ignore and resist Him, that has consequences as well. Notice, His adversaries are all broken. And whoever stands, whoever wins, we're told will not have done so by might. It is not by might that a man prevails. You've got to sit with that for a second and ask if you believe it. Because again, that is a theme that drives through the heart of Scripture and through your Christian walk. Man's power accomplishes nothing. The way of victory and success in life through our power has been taken off of the table, according to Hannah. That's just not a way that we can win. It won't have anything to do with man's willing and doing, with his power, his riches, his wisdom. It all depends on God and His power. It's His strength that gets the job done. Even God's king's exaltation requires God's empowering of it. And so Hannah's personal rescue becomes a paradigm, a paradigm for the nation's rescue, but a paradigm for our lives. Her horn and this future king's horn are clearly linked together, which teaches us that the kind of king that we should be looking for and rooting for and hoping for needs to look a whole lot more like Hannah then someone may be tall or proud or powerful, which, you know, if you know the story of Samuel, you see where this is going. Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, and little David, eighth in line, not even there for the meal, out tending the sheep with nothing to offer. There's something already told to us about who uh, our, our loyalties should be lent to, and where we think God will uh, bring His victory about. And what is wild is that, of course, as Hannah sings this song, Israel doesn't even have a king. (laughs) And until now, they've never had a king. And up till now, God's told them He's not going to give them one. And yet here she is singing about this anointed Messiah that God is going to grant. God will ultimately approve a king 
But her song tells us what kind of king he's going to approve and the sort of king he will have no pleasure in, which is what's going to make chapters 2 through 7, you know, up till a little bit of the beginning of 8. Over and over, we're going to see the problem exactly where Israel has their dependence. And if this is true, again, this changes things not just for Israel, but for us. I mean, this would mean if there's going to be any salvation at all, any rescue for you and for me, if there's any life that is true life, it has to come from God and God alone, from His strength and not ours. Salvation is from God is a theme that is sung in this song and obviously travels through Scripture. And this song really will set the roadmap for how we're to view Samuel and Eli, uh, David and Goliath, Saul and David, and so forth. It really is that obvious in the text. But of course, it stretches, as we've mentioned, beyond this in throughout the rest of Israel's national life and ultimately to her Messiah, even into our own lives. I mean, there will be another young lady, barely a teenager, whom God will visit and overshadow and grant to her a son. When she has no words to speak in gratitude, she will begin to sing this song and make it her own. I mean, the Magnificat, Mary's song, begins with the very phrasing of Hannah's song, and that is no accident. Mary realizes, again, that God always works in the lowly and the weak and the forgotten. From her womb will come a son named Jesus who will go to war on God's behalf, who will gain riches beyond measure, who will be given a name and a place that far surpasses any who has gone before him. And he will do all of that, gain all of that by losing, by humbling himself, by time and time again giving away and not seeking to acquire. Even as we read this morning, though he was God, he will make himself of no reputation. He will be born in a nowhere town to a no-name family and live a life of what seems like hardly any consequence for so many years. He will never own any property. He will be rejected by his own, even by some in his own family. And ultimately, he will be put to death by the most powerful government the world had ever known, the Roman Empire. But in that dying and in that getting low, he won. <laughs> God delighted to raise him up from the dead, declaring him King of kings and Lord of lords, to give him a name that is above every name, to give him po power and authority over all heaven and over all earth, even today, to sit him at the right hand of the majesty on high with riches and pleasures forevermore. And that King, Jesus, calls people to himself. But the people that he calls to himself have to look like this song. He calls those who are weak and needy and poor and desperate. And he shares all that he's gained with them. They inherit, just like in the song, a seat of honor. He raises them from the ash heap of their sin and misery and gives them the very inheritance that he's inherited. I mean, when you look around, what do you expect? 
mean, don't we expect the, the tall and the mighty and the beautiful and the popular and the rich to be victorious? But that's not how it works. Not ultimately. In fact, the taller they are, the harder they'll fall. And the more inflated, the greater the humiliation. And it is coming. I mean, it's coming. It's coming in this book, but it's coming in the world. I mean, maybe you doubt it. But think about it. I mean, how many times a week do you think about the Roman Empire? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how accurate the results are, but I do know this, that every week all over the globe, in every tribe and tongue and nation, people gather together and they proclaim the authority of King Jesus all over this world. How the mighty have fallen and the weak have risen. You may think about Rome, but they no longer stand. The dominion they once had is long gone and vanished. But Christ's rule continues even to this day. And if you've come to Jesus, it's only because you had to look at the facts and admit something. That you weren't wise enough, holy enough, strong enough to do it on your own. That you needed salvation from the Lord. I mean, it's true. I mean, you aren't. None of us are. I mean, maybe you look around on Sundays and you see certain people that seem to have it all together. And it's not that God doesn't bless some of us. Some of us are financially prosperous, and that's not a problem if that's not where your confidence is. And some of us, you know, are tall and good for you. You know, we're happy for you. Um, But we come week week, week in and week out, and no matter what it looks like on the outside, we all get down on bended knee and we say the same thing. We are sinners. We are needy. And we have no help outside of God. There is no health in us. And if we do that, and we do it together, I mean, look around. All those people you're jealous of, they had to say the same words, and Lord willing, they meant them. Because at the end of the day, we all come in the same posture, in our weakness and in our humility. And in fact, that's the only thing we have to give. But the good news is that's the only kind of people God helps. I mean, maybe you've experienced it, uh, uh, maybe you've gone to AA, if not, you've at least seen it in film or heard of it, you know, and the beginning of uh, when, when you introduce yourself, you know, I'm John and I'm an alcoholic. Well, that's what we do every week. We poor sinners confess to you, Almighty God, that we're saying to one another, this is who I really am. Save Jesus for me. And while at one level it's bad news, it has this strange upside that these are the kinds of people God promises to raise up, those who know who they are and can admit it. Which means that the real subjects of history, according to this text, are nobodies. They're the, you know, invincible uh, people uh, uh, of the the earth, the, the ones that we look at as mighty. They've all been overturned at one time or another. They become ordinary and forgotten over time. And our greatest strength is the weakness 
that we hate so much so many times, the thing that drove us to Christ in the first place, that thing that maybe is even gnawing at you at this very moment. There's a great scene in Fantastic Mr. Fox, if you've seen the film, if you haven't, you should, uh, where uh, Mr. Fox has a son, Ash, who, who's a little eccentric, strange kid, you know, wears a, a pair of underwear on his head as a mask and uh, makes his own cape, wants to be a superhero, but his dad just can't relate to him. The kid's a little strange. He's not coordinated, and Mr. Fox is an athlete, and everyone likes him. He's got a great personality. And at one point in the film, uh, Ash's cousin, Christofferson, comes to visit. Christofferson's tall, and he's athletic. He's good at everything, and Mr. Fox loves him talks about him all the time, and it's real clear to Ash that his father really admires and favors his cousin. And so, you know, they're, one day they're swimming, and they're both diving in, and Ash jumps in, and, you know, he's flailing his arms and, you know, uh, uh, rolling down the windows as he's trying to jump into this, uh, this pool, and, and, and Christofferson does this amazing swan dive with a couple flips, uh, and, and Mr. Uh, Fox doesn't even notice his own son, but applauds his, his nephew, and Ash comes to him and he says, um, Mom, Dad, do you think I'm an athlete? <laughs> I think I'm an athlete, and sometimes I don't think you guys see me that way. Which shows just how desperately he wants to be strong and big and noticed. But of course, at the climax of the film, when all hope is lost, there's something trapped uh, underneath a grate, and no one can open it. No one has the strength to get in. And this is Ash's moment. He, standing there with underwear on his head and his weird homemade cape flying in the wind, he says, I can fit down there. You want to know why? Because I'm little. You see, that's what you have if you see yourself for who you are. Your greatest strength is that you're little if you can stay there. And God comes to us today reminding us of that, not to make you feel miserable, but to remind you that He loves, He delights to show His strength for the weak, which is why Paul boasts in his weakness. It's why God has willed to work through weakness and not strength, to exalt the humble and not the proud, to bless the poor in spirit and comfort those who mourn. And he's doing it right now even through the weakness of this word and this paltry meal he's about to serve, he's saving you to the uttermost and displaying for you exactly how he's going to win the world. So may you believe it. Let's pray.